0: So, Keith, my Skype got updated, and it includes the latest features and general performance fixes. You ready to give this thing a spin?
1: Let's give it a spin, a whirl, a go-round, whatever it is. Let's get started.
0: These performance fixes don't seem to have done anything for the static in the background. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week 9 of the 2016 Division Three football season. The podcast for October 31st, 2016. We'll have all the tricks and all the treats. Uh, I think the tricks will be on whichever 9-1 and team or teams might get left out of the playoffs in a couple of weeks. And yes, it happens basically every year um and the uh, the treats will be at least they're going to be going to cedar rapids iowa for co-college where the Cohawks clinched the first automatic bid to the ncaa playoffs this season they clinched the iowa intercollegiate athletic conference i was trying to figure out on saturday whether they had done it by themselves or if they had done it in conjunction with dubuque losing to warburg and i, I figured out that um uh co-clinched it without help because they have just one game remaining and oh yeah Keith McKillen we should let him talk to
1: well yeah I'm here and I'm ready to chat playoffs um I think we're at that point in the season where it gets uh a lot more exciting in some conferences because you have the three and four way races and then you also have the conferences like the NFC where you just have a de facto title game coming up so we'll uh we'll go through all of that the, with the 27 conferences uh, in D three, not each one of them one oh, by one, but we'll hit some of the most interesting ones uh, in the next hour. Or so
0: I was going to say, buckle in for a two and a half hour podcast. Uh, also, because it would uh, might take uh, it might take us a, a little bit. Uh, Along those lines, that long to uh, track some of that information down. But yeah, so we have uh, all the playoff prognostication coming up now over the next couple of weeks. We have the first regional rankings from the NCAA. These are the ones that, of course, as a general disclaimer, reminder, they're not going to reflect what the D3Football.com Top 25 reflects because... Oh, shoot. So many things. Um, first of all, because, of course, you know, first of all, just two, sep- dif- two separate groups of voters. Uh, that's got one thing to do with it. Secondly, um, very regimented, very objective. That's the word, right? That's the one where it's uh, empirical and analytical and, and less subjective. Like uh, our top 25 is really focused on, um, you know, so many things more like uh, strength of conference and, and maybe some history and... Um, all sorts of things. Things that really make this poll perform well, um, but doesn't make it reflect the regional rankings, which are focused on five things. Keith, you know the five things? Oh, off the top? I know. I'm sorry, man. We're we're doing this in October after an 11th month layoff. So since I do this all the time in multiple sports and the criteria do not change across all Division three team sports, we're talking about... Uh, you know results against uh, division three opponents, and you know typically that is uh, construed as winning percentage, but that's not always the that's not always the be all and end all, uh, especially in football. Uh, strength of schedule, strength of schedule against all division three opponents. Um, you know head to head competition against other teams that uh, you might be ranked against or competing against for an at large bid. Um, results against common opponents and results against other teams who are regionally ranked. So those are the major five. They are what's called the primary criteria. Yeah, uh, when we talk about primary criteria, that's pretty much the same th- across all sports. I will say this, in football, of course, the whole winning percentage slash wins and losses is taken a little bit differently. Generally, teams are kind of grouped into uh, unbeaten teams, and then one-loss teams, and then two-loss teams. Generally, a team that's 8-1 and one against Division Three versus a team that's 9-1 and one versus a team that's 7-1, and one, there's not really a whole lot of difference as far as we can tell in the committee's mind. They're all pretty much viewed the same.
1: And I think in football, too, the the criteria basically boil down to two or three of them because when you're looking at them, the winning percentage is going to be fairly similar. Uh, highly unlikely, or maybe not highly unlikely, but unlikely there will be common opponents. So you're really looking at, in a lot of cases, wins over regionally ranked opponents and then that strength of schedule figure that gets computed with uh, opponents winning percentage and opponents opponents winning percentage. To back it all up one step, beep, when we talk about the beep, regional... Beep, Oh wow, that was really startling. I was, I was back. I was not, it was not expecting that.
0: We're already um, this punchy five minutes into the podcast. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: to back it up one step. When we talk about regional rankings, the one another thing we should specify, especially for people who uh, who haven't been uh, listening for very long, is that the uh, the committee is made up of the national selection committee is made up of eight um, either division three coaches administrators. Um, Conference, conference commissioners, commissioners. Yep. Mm-hmm. right. So, in each of those those eight, they they represent the four regions. So, there's two people on that committee at the head of each regional committee, and the regional committee has one representative from each conference. So, there are about eight or nine people, coaches, ads, or, or whatever, who meet uh, weekly, usually starting pretty early in the season, maybe September or October. On a conference call each week, they start ranking out the teams, and this is the first week that they'll publish that ranking. And for your practical purposes, as you explained last week in the podcast, Pat, the way to use those rankings is to sort of cross off in your region, cross off the teams that um, will probably be automatic qualifiers. And then what you have left over is the order of the teams that will get discussed First on the board from your region when they're talking about selecting at-large playoff teams. I hope that makes sense. If not, you know we'll help you visualize it, or we'll just talk about it um, in a week or two when we can actually name the teams that are on the board.
0: Yeah, and look for those regional rankings uh, here on D3Football.com about Wednesday afternoon. That is typically when the uh, when the when they are released. Um, and we were talking about, of course, you know, the automatic qualifiers. There are, I always have to do this in my head, there's 25 automatic qualifiers, 25 automatic bids in Division Three football for this field of 32 teams, and so that means there's not a lot of room for at-larges. Again, if you're just joining us for the first time this week, and we know there are a lot of people who joined us for the first time last week, so we appreciate that, um, then, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Frankly, just kind of do the math. You've got 25 conferences that have automatic bids, and then you know the American Southwest Conference also doesn't get an automatic bid, but might have an at-large contender. So, if you're thinking about doing the math uh, across uh, 26 or so conferences for six teams, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for at-large bids. So that's why i gonna be very focused. Uh, in in football, especially, on those automatic qualifiers. And, and we're going to run down a handful of the really interesting conference races uh, here over the course of the next 10, 15 minutes or so, and then we'll touch on some more of them as this podcast continues. But Keith, uh, one of the ones that we've been talking about, I think since the schedules came out uh, uh, for most of these teams back in the winter or early spring last year, is the President's Athletic conference. Um this is a conference that has 11 teams so it's too big for to play a full round robin and yet not big enough to have a conference championship game so they have uh they have an 8 team or an 8 game conference schedule so you play only 8 of the other 10 teams and you know when we looked at the schedule really early on you could pretty much see the nightmare scenario coming that Neither Thomas Moore nor Washington and Jefferson is playing Case Western Reserve, and we thought Case could be pretty good this year.
1: And it turns out they are pretty good. They're eight and zero after um, Saturday's win. They're headed potentially for ten and zero, and at ten and zero, they're probably a pool C lock. Pool C being the the six at large teams. But uh, at nine and one, with their strength of schedule, you know they may be sweating bullets.
0: Yeah, and the reason why we're talking about uh, Case as a Pool C team not winning the automatic bid is because you had to go through the tiebreakers uh, in the... And, oh, here's the other thing, of course, that if you're new, you probably don't know. Um, every conference is in charge of its own tiebreakers. So the NCAA doesn't pick who the tiebreaker winner is. Each conference has its own way to do it. And there's 25 conferences that need tiebreakers. Uh yeah, I think they all need tiebreakers, right? There's no uh, conference championship game at the moment. Uh, so there's 25 conferences that need tiebreakers. And there could be 25 different combinations and ways to do them because every conference is in control of that portion of its destiny. And frankly, in football, because you only play one game against uh, against every team on the schedule, there's not a whole lot of great tiebreakers after, you know, head-to-head. Two teams who or I'm sorry. Three teams who all tie, for example, with one loss at the top of the conference, and all lost to one of the other two, and beat the other one. You know, I uh, I implore you to come up with a great way to break that that uh, tie that doesn't involve you know uh, a three-headed coin flip, or you know, encouraging someone to run up the score on somebody else, or you know, any of a, a dozen things that have been tried over the course of the past uh, 17 years. So here's what happens in the pack. Basically, um, these teams do not play each other, and um, you know, they're if they're both going to run the table and end up undefeated, then obviously there's no you know going against the you know. Comparing the record against the best team in the conference, second best team in the conference, all sorts of things that work in other sports where we play more games like basketball or baseball. So for the pack, what happens is that uh, they're going to take the cumulative record of the eight teams in the conference that they did play. So uh, Case, as you can probably understand, not having played the one of the best teams in the conference, and W&J, which is uh, probably going to be uh, destined to finish 6-2 and two in the conference... Uh, currently four and two, Case is probably going to lose that tiebreaker. Uh, Thomas Moore didn't play Case, of course, but they didn't play Geneva either, and Geneva's a little bit further down the standings. Now, by my math, this hasn't been clinched yet, but this is the way it's trending. Uh, it's on its way to winning the tiebreaker, so uh, we could be in a situation where you know, like we were a couple years ago, Keith. We could have an unbeaten team sitting on the board in Pool C with a not great strength of schedule. Center did get in. Uh, when that when that situation came up a couple of years ago, but there was certainly a lot of discussion about it.
1: Yeah, because there are a lot of teams who could finish ten and zero. I'll give you a great example right off the top of my head uh, this season. John Carroll, their non conference game was Wisconsin Oshkosh. That's a top five team in the country right now. And then they have a conference game against Mount Union, also top five team in the country. Well, if you if John Carroll was to be so lucky as to not play any team in the top 20, 25, 50, whatever the case may be, they wouldn't have a very good strength of schedule, but they also would have a, a, a much greater chance at, at going 10-0 as opposed to 8-2. and 2. And uh, John Carroll is also a good example because that's the team that center played in round one uh, a couple years ago when they were 10-0 and 0 and they got in, and John Carroll won that game 63-28 or something of that effect. Oh, so yeah, there is corrected. something to be said for uh, a team that's 9-1 and one or 8-2 coming out of a very strong conference or having played a strong schedule versus a 10-0 and o team that hasn't.
0: Now That's one but, of those scores that sticks in your head, right? I think it exactly was 63-28. to 28.
1: And, and for that reason, too, because there was so, such a focus on that game because um, an undefeated team had never been left out of the playoffs, and I think we both agree that if you're unbeaten, you shouldn't be left out of the playoffs. But um, there really is something to be said for Playing a tougher schedule, you know, we shouldn't view all eight and twos, all nine and one, all ten and zero as equal.
0: And I um, think the football committee has tried as much as it can over the course of the last couple of years to try to bridge that gap. Maybe not from eight and two to ten and zero, but definitely from eight and two to nine and one.
1: I think what's really interesting about this case this season is uh, this case cases case. If we may be specific, they're eight and zero uh, right now, uh, but they go to Westminster. Pennsylvania six and two team that's uh, been on the rise and is having a pretty good season. So the Titans could make this all moot by Saturday. But for right now, the uh, the the pack or the PAC if you want to call it that um, has the most interesting tiebreaker scenario or potential playoff problem scenario uh,
0: in the country. If Case gets past uh, Westminster, they face Carnegie Mellon, and Carnegie Mellon beat Westminster uh, this past Saturday. So there's a, a couple of challenges yet for them. And, and also, you know Case's strength of schedule is pretty low right now, but because they have two pretty good uh, teams left on their schedule, it will come up. Remember, if you're looking at strength of schedule numbers on our website, it only counts the games that have been played so far, not the games left on the schedule. That is indeed the pack. The pack could be super interesting. Uh, Let's talk about uh, another conference that is interesting, and we've talked about uh, quite a bit over the course of the season because of uh, some of the uh, interesting ways in which the season started and because there are so many um, good teams in this conference since the conference kind of reshuffled a couple years ago, and that's the New Jersey Athletic Conference. And after all of the uh, discussion early in the season, Keith, about... You know, Wesley losing early on a non conference game to Delaware Valley, losing early on an NJAC game to Christopher Newport. Uh, They still control their destiny in this uh, this league. They beat Frostburg head to head earlier um, handily. Um, Wolverines play Salisbury this week and William Patterson to finish. So uh, two wins actually gives them the title and then, you know, the automatic bid. Um, On the other side, if Salisbury beats Wesley this week, and if Frostburg beats Montclair, then uh, Salisbury and Frostburg, which is a rivalry game in itself, uh, becomes an NJAC title game in Week 11. And uh, you know, if, if those things don't happen, then uh, we'll rediscuss this next week. But those are the major scenarios to, to cover right now. Hey, we've
1: had times on the podcast where we've had to discuss five-way tiebreaker scenarios, four-way tiebreakers. So, uh, so it can happen. But I think the NJAC has actually as much of a mess as it appeared to be. Uh, over the past few weeks, and where there were teams that had a chance to to put Wesley away or put some distance between themselves and Wesley, uh, weren't able to do that. And and right now, you look at the top of the the NJAC standings. It's Frostburg State and Salisbury, both six and one in the conference, seven and one overall. Wesley six and one in the conference, six and two overall. And uh, the great thing about it is it, it could clean itself up with these two games uh, next week, Wesley. Uh, against Salisbury, the Route 13 rivalry, and then the Regents Cup game between the two Maryland-based members of the NJAC. So, could get could get this two results that clean this thing right up, or or as you said, Wesley still controls its own destiny, or it could get crazy. And uh, you know, Christopher Newport, Rowan, and even Montclair State have uh, have been in the mix at different times during the season.
0: Yep, Rowan uh, kind of knocked Christopher Newport out of the conversation a little bit, and then Frostburg beat Rowan 24-14 on Saturday to uh, make this. At least a m- more of a three team race. Uh, again, if, if those presupposed suppositions don't happen, we'll talk about it on next week's podcast. I'm almost certain. Um, we're going to stick in the uh, middle of the alphabet. How about that? And go with the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference for a second, where uh, Aurora is unbeaten in the league. I might just say the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference contains teams in Illinois and Wisconsin. Anyway, Aurora is unbeaten in the conference play, but uh, two teams are tied behind them at Lake uh, at one loss apiece, and that's Lakeland and Benedictine. And Aurora, Aurora hasn't played either of those teams yet. Uh, Aurora could clinch this week with a win versus Lakeland, and if Benedictine loses to Concordia Chicago, uh, that particular scenario is probably not very likely. Uh, Aurora can certainly, uh, of course, controls its own destiny. I mean, they're unbeaten in the conference, so if they beat Lakeland and Benedictine the next two weeks, that's an automatic bid for Aurora. Uh, And that would be a a program that's come off the mat. uh, They've they've been down for a few years. Um, The one thing, the nice thing is that this conference can't end up in one of those three-way triangle ties I was talking about earlier because uh, Lakeland lost to Wisconsin-Lutheran, which is not one of those three tied teams. So at least there's a tiebreaker hope there, and we don't have to start digging into the NAC bylaws and tiebreakers and looking for those uh, three-sided dice.
1: Yeah, and and we'll get to sort that one out again. You know, the three ways can be kind of fun um, when three good teams are are involved in it. But in this case, you know, you're looking at um, teams right now, even Aurora, which you mentioned undefeated in the conference, uh, just five and three overall, Benedictine five and three, Lakeland five and three. So you're looking at a team that uh, whichever team clinches, probably going to be an eight seed. Maybe a seven seed and get sent, um, you know, to Mount Union or St. Thomas or Wisconsin Whitewater, Whitewater or somewhere or like that. North the first Central round. So, or, yeah, yeah. So the 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 reward for winning, of course, is you always want to test yourself against the best, no matter what what conference you're from. But the reward for for winning this conference because they didn't perform so well in non-conference play is uh, is going to be an awful tough reward.
0: Moving on to the North Coast Athletic Conference, there's there's four players in this race at least. Um, Denison still controls its own destiny even after losing to DePaul this week uh, DePaul is a player in this race uh, even though they've lost two games because they still play uh, Denison and they still, or sorry, they played Denison they still play uh, Wabash so they've got an opportunity to uh, to affect the race at least there um, I'm not sure if there's a scenario in which enough of these teams get knocked down to two losses and DePaul actually plays into a tiebreaker Um, But Wabash finishes with Denison and DePauw. Wabash does not control its own destiny because if Wabash wins both of those games and Wittenberg wins its final two games, and those games are against Allegheny and Kenyon, so that's a very possible uh, scenario, then Wittenberg would win the automatic bid in the tiebreaker, the head-to-head win from earlier this season. Uh, Like I said, Denison controls its own destiny uh, because if they beat Wabash and Kenyon to finish off, then it doesn't matter what Wittenberg does because... Uh, Wittenberg uh, already lost to Denison. One of the other things I should have probably said about uh, tiebreakers, too, is that head-to-head is always the first tiebreaker. If we're in a in, ever in a situation where it's just two teams that played each other uh, head-to-head, it's, it's pretty easy to figure that one out.
1: Which is why you never hear us talk about two-way tiebreakers, right? <laughs> the three-way and the four-way and occasional five are the ones where it gets really interesting. The uh, The interesting thing about the case in, in the North Coast is um, – it's a four-way race, but there's a result outside this four, and that was uh, two weeks ago, um, October 22nd. Ohio Wesleyan uh, really kind of whooped up on uh, on DePaul, 37-15. Then DePaw turns around, hands Denison its first loss. So the same way we praised in last week's podcast the way that other teams have, have risen to the challenge and made this conference more than just a Wabash-Wittenberg race and and when that game would happen early in the season the, the the NCAC race would sort of be be over in September or early October It's a lot more interesting this time around at least for those of us who aren't fans of one particular team but um, uh, it should sort itself out especially um, with, with these games coming up this week and of course uh, the Mona Bell game in, uh, in week 11.
0: I'm sure to pause far more concerned with trying to figure out how to f- ever win one of those Monon Bell games again than trying to figure out uh, the possible tiebreaker scenarios that get them in the playoffs, uh, especially since they're not going to win a tiebreaker if they don't beat Wabash. Um, one other conference we wanted to talk about here in the top of the podcast is the American Southwest Conference. Now, this is the one that doesn't have an automatic bid. Uh, basically, any conference in Division Three that has seven full Division Three members playing football or the sport in question, is going to get an automatic bid. Uh, Sometimes it might take a two-year waiting period. Uh, In this case, uh, the ASC dropped below seven teams a few years ago when Mississippi College left and moved back to Division II. And uh, even though the ASC has added a couple of schools since then, uh, Bellhaven is coming over from the NAIA, so they're not eligible. McMurray, with its ill-fated decision, ill-fated that's probably a kind way to say that. I should come up with a more deprecating way to say the debacle it was that McMurray decided to leave Division Three to go to Division II for like a year and a half and then come back. Anyway, they're not currently eligible for the, uh, for the playoffs either, so they don't count towards the seven. And uh, that means that for the past couple of years, the ASC has gone without an automatic bid. Hasn't really hurt them in terms of getting teams in the field. Um, because they're still eligible for at-large bids, and also they're eligible for the one bid that is called Pool B. Uh, Basically, if there's enough teams that don't have an automatic bid to play for, then there's uh, a bid or a number of bids set aside for them. So there's basically these teams in the ASC, there's four teams in the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference, and then a handful of independents that are all technically eligible for this Pool B bid. But the only teams that are really... In play for this are the three that are in the ASC
1: yeah you pretty much hit all the points I wanted to hit the only thing to add really is that um you know there was a time when pool B was to 30 teams across division three because there were so many conferences in flux and uh there would be three pool B bids set aside and and really now especially with Wesley um Joining a conference and now being eligible for the for that NJAC automatic qualifier, it really is just these uh, American Southwest teams. And you know, we haven't had a a, a an SEAC team really push for it this year. There was there was times when uh, Texas Lutheran competed for it, but right now, it's almost like the American Southwest automatic qualifier goes to to the winner of that conference. So you, you the one bid that's set aside for a non automatic bid conference. UMHB takes that, and where it gets really interesting is this Saturday. Hardin-Simmons, East Texas Baptist, both of those teams are seven and one. Uh, they, it's almost like a, a pool C knockout game yeah. in the sense that one of those teams is going to pick up a second loss. They already have no guarantees as it is. They have to go in the pool uh, with that with the other um, at large runners up uh, across the country. And to pick up that second loss this Saturday, whichever team it ends up being, whether it's the Cowboys or the Tigers, is really going to put a pretty good team in a tough spot. But it also is an opportunity for one of those teams to pick up the win that it might need to qualify in Pool C.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that, uh, of course, assuming that uh, the winner of this game on Saturday also wins in week 11, I think that the winner of the Harden simmons East Texas Baptist game is in pretty good shape for an at-large bid. Um, probably better shape if you're Harden-Simmons. But, um, yeah, I think that, uh, again, the ASC is probably a two-team league. Unfortunately, Hendricks lost on Saturday. We spent some time uh, in last week's podcast talking about the scenario that might permit uh, Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor to not play each other in the first round. Um, For that to happen now this year, the NCAA is going to have to spend some money, and they don't like to spend more money – on Division Three playoffs, then they have to. Long story short, which is like the theme of every playoff-related podcast, the uh, the Division Three only gets 3.18 percent of the entire NCAA budget. So you hear all these numbers about uh, what the March Madness contract does for the NCAA, and Division Three gets a very, very small slice of that pie. And flying Division Three football teams around the country is actually they think the most expensive thing that the NCA does at the division three level. Um, So they're, uh, they're not super interested in spending more money than the minimum, especially on the first round. If teams can bust to each other and if they're within 500 miles, that's the, that's the limit. Then, um, you know, then you can pretty much count on seeing them. So like if you're a Whitworth fan uh, and Whitworth makes the playoffs I, I, I don't know the likelihood of that, of course, uh, this year, but uh, you're guaranteed to play Linfield, basically. If you're a Harden-Simmons fan, you're almost guaranteed to play Murray Harden-Baylor, and unfortunately, that's kind of the way it is in Division Three. As much as we don't like it over the last 17 years, we've kind of learned to at least live with it here.
1: Yeah, and the only way it gets the, the apple cart gets upset, I guess, is when a, an extra team gets in the mix. And then you have Mary Harden Baylor going to central in round one, or you have Harden Simmons playing Wittenberg, which you mentioned in last week's podcast. Um, this year, there, as you mentioned, there, there's not really an opportunity uh, for, for, unless Hendricks somehow wins the saa because uh huntingdon and i looked this up not too long before we went on air that's uh 700 some odd miles away montgomery to belton texas um 11 hours pretty much straight shot on i-20 but still uh uh too far for um for uh, a bus ride so it's got to be a flight um and i don't think there's anybody else in the south really that's that's even remotely close i mean barry is even further away um, and, and who else is in the in the SAA race?
0: Yeah, I mean, center is up in Kentucky They're even further. Um, if you're a Mary Harden-Baylor fan and you want to avoid playing Harden-Simmons in the first round now, I think what you have to root for is uh, root for uh, Harden-Simmons to win on Saturday and then lose to McMurray uh, for them to pick up the second loss. I think that's the only way that you avoid that uh, first-round matchup. Then, if you had just one Texas team qualify, the NCAA would be forced to fly somebody to uh, to Belton for the first round at least. And again,
1: that just means you're a Mary Hart and baylor fan who gets to see a new face, which Mary Hart and baylor fans usually have a couple, three, four weeks of playoffs. They get to see some new faces anyway, so it may not be too much of a concern for them. And while we're on the topic of of the D3 playoff islands, it doesn't look too good right now for a second Northwest Conference team. Yep. So it looks like it's, it'll probably, you can safely pencil in, Skyak, Skyak champion champ. yeah. uh-huh. going to Linfield in round one, too.
0: Um, and uh, at the moment, uh, Redlands is uh, sitting in first place in that conference. And that would be a perfectly familiar matchup. We've spent a lot of time here going through just a handful of conferences. We're going to come back in a moment and talk about some of the rest but I'd also like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. Uh, you could be reaching an audience full of Division three football decision makers, coaches who need new equipment, uh, who can influence decisions to uh, replace turf, uh, who can uh, you know, uh, talk about uh, video jumbotrons, weight room equipment, all sorts of things by sponsoring this here Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we went to break. I'm actually... Uh, no, I'm I'm not really good at uh, at poetizing, but uh, I can wax. Uh, so think about it and uh, drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. More than 1,200 unique listeners to our previous podcast from last week. This is the time of the season. You're missing out. That's what I'm trying to say. Moving on to game balls. Yeah, time to start the rundown for week nine. And uh, my game ball, Keith, goes to Shane Sweeney, the Hobart quarterback. I don't know what else this guy has up his sleeve for the rest of his career because uh, his late game heroics have already been pretty legendary. This week he added to it by driving his team 58 yards in 15 seconds and throwing the game winning touchdown to Jack Full, which has three ticks left for a 35-31 win at WPI. So that was his fourth touchdown of the day to go with 346 yards passing on uh, 26 of 36. Uh, Last week, Sweeney threw the game-winning touchdown with a minute 47 left. In week five, it was with 19 seconds left, threw it with 216 left in week four. And in week one, well, uh, they ran for the winning touchdown, uh, finishing an 88-yard touchdown drive with a buck 29 left for the win. Uh, hopefully, the Statesman fans have refilled their blood pressure medication prescriptions, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Sweeney and uh, St. Lawrence, uh, Sweeney and Hobart in action at St. Lawrence. I'm going to be going up to Suburban Canada, uh, South Canada, whatever uh, you want to call Canton, New York, which is pretty close to the Canadian border for that uh, Liberty League showdown coming up this week.
1: Blood pressure medication prescriptions—that could be a good sponsor,
0: uh, especially if from Canada. Isn't everything—all the drugs are cheaper from Canada, right? That's what I understand.
1: Good Good job. Good joke. Mine goes to two freshmen from Nichols College, Chris Mullins and Tony Martinoli, and the coach who recruited them, Dale Olmsted. Now, if you're wondering just who the heck Nichols is, I forgive you. This program was completely off the D3 grid, a doormat and a doormat conference, to be frank. The Bison were 5-54 and 54 over six seasons from 2010 to 2015. Now, Olmstead, who was kind enough to talk with Josh Smith for our kickoff season preview edition, and I'm telling you folks, ordering kickoff and reading what's in it every year is an eye-opener. Olmstead talked to Smith about how to sell a perennially bad program to prospective players, and one of the insights, as you might expect, was to push playing time. Mullins, who is from my neck of the woods in Northern Virginia, went to the D3 school in Dudley, Massachusetts, which is right on the Connecticut border and not far from Rhode Island. He completed a school record 43 passes for 432 yards and a 43-35 win over Curry on Saturday, the third straight one-score shootout for Skip Bandini's Banditos, by the way. 17 of those completions went to Martinoli, a 6'2", 179-pounder from Santa Rosa, California. So somehow, D3 footballs brought together a kid from Virginia, another from California, a coach from West Liberty State in West Virginia, to Massachusetts to make beautiful music together. All right, maybe I'm overstating it a little bit, but Nichols is now 4-4 four and four with its final two games at Maine Maritime, which is 1-6, and six, and against MIT, which is 2-6. and six. So this season, the Bison could win six games more than in the past six seasons combined. And if, you're, and if you're thinking, well, you know, that's great, but why do I care about some podunk program in the NFC? Well, you should root for all turnarounds. It wasn't that long ago that St. Lawrence was the doormat of the Liberty League and Delaware Valley was the doormat of the MAC. There's Bridgewater, which went from 0 and 10 in 1998 to the Stag Bowl in 2001. Nichols might never get that far, but Mullins, Martinoli, and Olmstead are helping further the tradition of keeping hope alive for all the struggling programs across D3.
0: For all of you who are kind of scrolling through our standings page right now, Nichols isn't spelled with a K. It's N-I-C-H-O-L-S. So, yeah, go find the bison. Bison, singular. Um, Because the plural of bison is still bison. Um... Let's say this is the part of the podcast where we talk about uh, teams on the rise on our top 25 ballot. And I only added one team to my ballot this week, and that was uh, that was Hobart. And not that I'm super convinced about the Statesman as a top 25 program either, because usually winning a bunch of close games is an indication that, you know, eventually you're not going to win one of those. But uh, sometimes I'll vote for a team as... Uh, a hedge or a precursor against them uh, playing or possibly upsetting a team in an upcoming week. In this case, uh, with Hobart playing St. Lawrence this week, I'm recognizing there is a distinct possibility Hobart could win this game.
1: Yeah, for my riser in the poll, uh, you know, actually, I just can't recall seeing anything like what's going on in the poll right now with, with nearly all the points solidifying around 21 teams instead of 25. Monmouth is in the poll with 27 points or just a hair more than the equivalent of being listed at number 25 on all top 25 ballots. It has to be one of the lowest point totals in history. Coincidentally, I didn't make a major change on my ballot until the 21 spot this week. My top 15 teams stayed the same, which I can't remember ever doing before. And there was only some minor shuffling between 16 and 20, moving around Salisbury, East Baptist, Stevenson, and St. Lawrence. That meant I had the same 20 teams in spots one through 20. Now, Denison's loss cleared the three teams uh, from the North Coast off my ballot, and more on that in a minute. Uh, and it brought me to Trinity of Connecticut uh, at number 21. The the Bantams dominated then-unbeaten Middlebury 49-13, rushing for 224 yards, intercepting five passes, and sacking Panthers quarterbacks four times. Voters are slow to come around on NESCAC teams because their first week of games this year was September 24th, which is everyone else's week four. On top of that, with the closed eight-game schedule, there are no non-conference results to help measure strength of schedule. It's strictly a guess. Some voters measure NESCAC strength, like the other New England conferences, comparing them to the NFC, the ECFC, and the MASCAC. But I compare the top NESCAC schools to ones like Johns Hopkins or RPI, uh, academically known schools which have a name and drawing power beyond their local recruiting area. So if Johns Hopkins can reach the top 10, if Case Western Reserve can creep into the top 25, then so can a NESCAC team. The hard part, this season at least, was figuring out which one with with the late start and with, with so many teams uh, in contention, Tufts and and Wesleyan and Amherst, and, and not knowing which one was going to really emerge right away, it meant that we had to wait until deep in the season to see enough of those programs clash with each other. And uh, and the Bantams, I think they they won emphatically, not just on Saturday, but but throughout the entire season. Uh, and and you know on Saturday it was it was against the best team they'll face all season. And so if they are similar to Johns Hopkins or Case and the type of athletes they recruit, voters can feel comfortable ranking them if they wish, and as I did this week. I also had a bit of a struggle for my last two spots uh, on the ballot. I considered Randolph-Macon, which is seven and one, but whose best win is just at six and two Shenandoah. Uh, Huntingdon, which beat Greensboro by 71 points on Saturday, but also has a 10-point loss at three and four North Carolina Wesleyan from earlier this month. I also like Muhlenberg. Uh, which is coming off a 72-7 win against Dickinson. and was featured in Adam Turr's Snap Judgments column on Saturday. But ultimately, I stuck with Western New England, which will put itself to the test against fellow unbeaten uh, Salve Regina in Week 10. That's this Saturday. And Monmouth, which got a boost when a team it beat, Wartburg, knocked off Dubuque on Saturday.
0: I almost booked a trip to Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, that was the other candidate for uh, where I was headed this week. Uh, you got lots of respond here, Keith. But uh, you say voters are slow to come around, and perhaps voters just don't think they should rank a team that doesn't play anybody in the rest of Division Three. So here's a little bit uh, more of the story. The NESCAC season's 20% shorter than everyone else's. That's more than 20% fewer practices and at least 20% fewer games, even more so when you compare a NESCAC player to someone who's gone to the playoffs. By the time a NESCAC player is a senior, he's almost a whole season behind everybody in the rest of Division Three, the full Division Three pool. Could a team with no seniors compete in Division Three? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely happens. Uh, but it's not automatic. And, and while Amherst and Johns Hopkins might have drawing power and might recruit similar students in terms of test scores, that doesn't equate to the same thing on the football field. I mean, Johns Hopkins... and. Pomona-Pitzer recruits similar students, too, and yet we don't see the Sage Hens in the football playoffs or the Division Three Baseball World Series or making a Sweet 16 men's basketball run. Uh, the Midwest Conference and the Skyac recruit from those types of prospective student-athletes as well. If Trinity and St. Norbert recruit from the same type of athletes, voters could also feel comfortable with not ranking them if they wish, just the same way they don't rank uh, St. Norbert. Um, when we get to the end, I think we agree that, quote, it's strictly a guest. Uh, Keith McMillan, you have a one-minute rebuttal.
1: Well I don't even I won't even take the whole full minute. I, I just think that it, either we should make them um, you know ineligible for the top 25 or we should take them seriously as a candidate one or the other but what kind of happens is some people take them seriously and some of them don't and a lot of it is their own fault from not participating and starting later and I'm sure you know they don't care that much whether they're in the d3football.com top 25 or not. but if we're trying to present the most uh, accurate, ranking of the the 25 best teams in the country, then we should consider them, or we should just do what we do with the conference ranking, which is to say, because they're outside of the circle and there is no data, then we just don't rank them at all because it's strictly a guess.
0: It's very possible that everybody does consider them and just doesn't consider them rankable. Okay, we'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the debate segment brought to you by – I'm kidding. Of course, there's no sponsor for that either. All right. We talked a lot about uh, teams moving into the rankings. Uh, Let's talk about teams falling out, Um, right? Only one team fell out of the top 25, and uh, that happened on a lot of people's ballots. Uh, Since I didn't have to spend a lot of time considering teams to add into my poll, I looked pretty hard at East Texas Baptist and the trouble it had closing out Louisiana College, and I reshuffled some teams around that spot in my ballot. Um, If you look at the poll closely, and I really hope people do, uh, you can often see clusters of teams and sometimes kind of big breaks in the poll between teams. So, uh, for example, in this week's poll, you have Alfred, St. Lawrence, and Co. each within 14 points of each other, uh, just about half a point of ballot. That's a pretty tight clump. Uh, There's an even bigger clump that follows that, where Salisbury, Wabash, John Carroll, and East Texas Baptists are all within 19 points of each other. Uh, It really only takes a couple of voters to shift things around to result in East Texas Baptists dropping three spots off of this week.
1: The teams for me that would take a fall were all three North Coast Athletic Conference teams by virtue of Dennis's loss to DePaul. Denison beat Wittenberg. Wittenberg beat Wabash and DePaul. Uh, and those results call all four teams' top 25 worthiness into question. So if the Big Red aren't top 25 and they're theoretically better than Wittenberg, who's theoretically better than Wabash, um, I don't know why I'm mispronouncing Wabash today. Uh, <laughs> You're, we're all
0: focused on trying to get Monon Bell correct, I'm sure.
1: Of course. Uh, thanks for, you know, not just correcting me right after that, but bringing it back up again later. I really appreciate that. Um, did you, did you say it wrong earlier? Why? I, I I don't know. Uh, I think you definitely pronounced it differently than I did one sentence before.
0: I, I, I screwed it up on ESPN one year. It's okay. It happens.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't say Al Gahaney
0: (laughs) or Mullenberg. Go on.
1: Um, if the big red aren't top 25, team right and if they're theoretically better than wittenberg who's theoretically better than wabash and how can you rank any of them so i went from ranking three of them last week to none of them this week because of of denison's loss now are, are the little giants still in the top 25 surviving off history and name recognition you know they're they're seven and one but they haven't beaten a team with a winning record heck they've only played two teams that are so much as 500 they have the 220 first rated strength of schedule thanks Al. In any case, uh, yeah, you're right. That looked like a good game at the beginning of the year. Turns out uh, not so much. Uh, in any case, uh, the Little Giants go to Denison this week. They host the Monon Bell game uh, with DePaul at 107 on November 12th. And we'll find out soon which uh, NCAC team, if any, are, are top 25 worthy. And if not, someone will just have to settle for being playoff worthy.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, Keith. I really was not trying to rag on you for. I didn't even notice what you said about the Monon Bell game earlier. Well, now we're, we're all super conscious of it. Is it Monon Bell? Is it Monon? No one's gonna say that. All right, <laughs>
1: Monon. let's keep it. It is kind of like a, a test question, though, if you're
0: for if you're, uh, hiring, we should put that on the test. There you go, that and Galardine. Right, do you pronounce the G? Yep. If you, if, you get, if you can't get uh, those things right, then you can't work for the We're moving on with our interview segment where uh, earlier in the podcast, we talked about a handful of conferences where the uh, results uh, coming up this season for the automatic bid is very much up in the air. Uh, in the Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference, this was all but settled on the field this week and the previous week. First, where uh, Rose Holman defeated Franklin head-to-head, and then uh, Franklin knocking Mount St. Joseph out of, the, uh, out of the potential tie in the playoff race. All Rose Holman has to do over here, over the course of the next couple of weeks, is have a bye this week and then play Earlham uh, coming up in week 11. And as part of that, uh, over the last couple of weeks... Uh, Adam Turr, who is the Around the Nation columnist, chatted with rose Holman head coach Jeff Sokol, and they start off by talking about uh, how they tracked, uh, how rose Holman tracked what was going on at the Franklin game, a little bit about uh, scoreboard watching in Division Three.
2: So what uh, you know, what did you guys do? Did you immediately you know, go to the locker room, talk to your guys, and everyone start pulling up the score to see what's going on in Mount St. Joe? Pretty much, yeah. They announced the, the score with like two minutes to go on our game, um, and it was... Oh, what was it? It was 42 to 24, I think, at the time, with a minute to go in the third quarter. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, then we were just kind of monitoring. uh, You know, people would, every time Franklin would score, people would scream it out as we were just kind of (laughs) hanging out after the after the game talking to our parents and stuff. So. And, uh, you know, after the loss to Mount St. Joe, how did you get your guys to kind of recalibrate and stay focused and realize that, that, you know, all the goals were still ahead of them? We talked about it in the locker room after the game, you know, that in a lot of ways, at least as far as the conference championship went, um, you know, being able to at least share a, a piece of the conference championship, that, that nothing had really changed, that we were still in control of our own destiny and, and that we just had to – get ourselves right, and, uh, and and play great football. To be back in control of our own destiny for a national playoff berth, yes. Yeah, and I mean, do they realize, uh, I'm sure they do, I'm sure you mentioned it, you know, it's the first time in program history. So, I mean, what does that mean to, to you, and then what does it mean to, to this group of players? We, we talk about it all the time. It's We have two goals, to win our conference championship and to be the first Rose Holman football team to uh, represent this great institution on the national level uh, in the playoffs, and we've been playing football for 124 years. Um, so it's 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 very special to to our guys to uh, to have this opportunity to uh, to earn our way into the playoffs again.
0: It might have been pretty difficult for Rose Holman to keep its team focused if they've got a bye week coming up this week and then Earlham coming up in Week Eleven. But uh, having a playoff game most likely to look forward to in Week Twelve is uh, certainly a different matter.
1: Yeah, and the coach can can yell or try to motivate the players, you know, as, uh, until he's blue in the face. But having that playoff game or having that opportunity to play one one more week of football to earn two more weeks of football, however long it is. Uh, That kind of motivation, it's self-motivating and and the coach really doesn't have to do a whole lot. So uh, as long as your team's still in contention for the conference title, um, you know, even when things go poorly early in the season, you look at Wesley, you look at uh, what what Rose Holman did, uh, you know, after an early loss in the season, as long as uh, I think the time teams really kind of check out or are in danger of checking out is when everything you work for, which is conference title, potential playoff bid, and so forth, when when all that stuff goes out the
0: window. Long history of football at rose Holman, as uh, Sokol mentioned, and uh, with an opportunity to go to the NCAA playoffs for the first time. Moving on uh, with my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm going to go with the new passing record set on Saturday in the Southern Athletic Association. And no, it doesn't belong to Hendricks quarterback Seth Peters or the quarterback who outgunned him on Saturday. That was P.J. Settles from Rhodes, by the way. Uh, instead, this record now belongs to University of Chicago quarterback, quarterback Blake Moser, who threw for a record 558 yards on 26 of 42 passing, including seven touchdowns. So five of those touchdowns were 46 yards or longer. Uh, and the Maroons spotted Sewanee a 17 nothing lead but came back to win 49-30.
1: Pat, I'm glad you mentioned East Texas Baptist surviving Louisiana College earlier, holding on to win 64-62 when a late two-point conversion attempt failed. The Tigers turned a four-point third-quarter deficit into a 15-point lead with eight and a half minutes left, only to have to hold on and bite their nails all the way to the finish. Uh, East Texas Baptist has a huge clash uh, that we've mentioned like four times now with uh, with Harden Simmons next week. Um, But I can do that game one better to to get a little further off the beaten path from my actual honoree in this category. Bridgewater trailed 41-28 after the first Guilford possession of the second half, and then suddenly both defenses joined the game. The Eagles, who are just 3-5 and five this season and far removed from their days as a contender, got a Malavi Barker touchdown run with 52 seconds left to send Guilford to his fourth straight loss after a 4-0 start by a 42-41 score. So the Eagles gave up six Quakers touchdowns on their first 10 possessions. Then they came up with stops on Guilford's final six possessions. Two interceptions, two fourth down stops, and two forced punts.
0: That was definitely a surprising result, too. Uh, but for my most surprising result, I wanted to look at the Barry Millsaps game. Uh, Barry has made a living kind of scraping by by the skin of its teeth the past couple of seasons, and it almost came back to bite them on Saturday. In fact, it may well have, if not for this play.
2: Oh, wells. Believe Manny Enzo. Oh, so important. Extra point blocked. And oh, my goodness. Look at him run.
1: Room to run. Arnett will score this. That's two
2: points to tie the ball game back. My Lord, just when you think
0: Berry College is out of it. David Arnett will I think run that's all Mamadou. the way back to the house. I do think Mamadou Samara blocked that field goal. I think
1: he got up right in the middle. An
2: unbelievable turn of events as we think Millsaps is about to go up by a field goal when in fact the game is... Now tied by the Vikings after a block from Mamadou Sumaro.
0: You can see video of this play on our uh, Plays of the Week reel, but uh, if... You did not see it, or you did not follow. Mamadou Sumaro blocked Millsap's extra point attempt. Jordan Arnett returned at 98 yards for a two-point defensive conversion to retie the game at 19 apiece, and the Barry goes on to win it overtime at, uh, at home, 22-19. Millsap's falls to 2-6. and six. But uh, talk about winning with defense, Keith. Sumaro scored Barry's first touchdown with a fumble return early in the second quarter. Uh, Millsap scored his first touchdown, a kickoff return. So the Barry defense scored 8 and only allowed 13, which is a pretty uh, measurable difference in an overtime game
1: my most surprising result or, or I guess the results I least expected to see were Albright 33 Widener 9 and Tufts 27 Amherst 10 two teams and the pioneers and Lord Jeff's I mean the pride and the not the moose anyway <laughs> anyway two teams that were known for prolific offense to see them both struggle to put up points is another reminder that like each team's mascot nothing stays the same
0: for a stat of the week I've already been pretty stat heavy in this podcast but I'm going to throw out a couple more numbers here they're just they're not necessarily positive ones uh, one of them is 31 the other is 28 and those are the current longest losing streaks in division 3 the 31 belongs to Earlham which has been stomped or worse in its last 5 games including Saturday's 65 to 13 loss at Manchester the other is Grove City's losing streak Wolverines lost 21 to 14 to Geneva On Saturday, Grove City scored with 3.39 left to tie the game, but Geneva needed just 66 seconds to go 83 yards and retake the lead. Grove City went nowhere in its next possession. Geneva ran out the clock and closed out the win. If you're a Wolverines fan and you're listening to this podcast, and I mean Grove City, not Wesley, not Michigan, uh, first of all, kudos. Thanks for listening. Secondly, um, at least with the three one-score losses this season, you can look and see that there's some progress being made and maybe a breakthrough comes through soon.
1: Yeah, and, and if we get to the two-minute drill, uh, or if we get through it, there are a couple of teams who have picked up their first win this season. It's always it's rough to see teams struggle kind of week to week. And you do like to see them uh, get close. And and again, you look into those scores and uh, and see a little bit of progress. Uh, Colby made progress uh, for my stat of the week. Uh, They were down 21 to three. Uh, They nearly came back to beat Bates in uh, the first part of the CBB rivalry. It's uh, the nation's best three-way rivalry this side of Army, Navy, Air Force. The Bobcats stopped the two-point conversion with 234 left to hang on and win 21-19. The neat stat, though, was Bates outrushing Colby, 191-0, and the White Mules nearly pulling off the win. Uh, by the way, uh, Bowden hosts Bates next week in part two of CBB, and then uh, Bowden goes to Colby in week 11 to uh, to finish off the three-way part of that rivalry. Meantime, keeping with the theme, Louisiana College gained 502 yards and lost. Wash U. Gained 526 in loss. In both cases, though, the opponent gained more than 700. Hendricks, as you mentioned, put up a whopping 670 yards, and they lost, or it lost. Uh, Guilford, Guilford, it was 682 yards with nearly 300 yards rushing and still a loss. Uh, Pacific wide receiver Kobe Williams had 20 catches for 237 yards on Saturday, and the boxers lost by 20 to Whitworth, 55-35 which uh, just reminds me that football is such a perplexing yet enthralling game.
0: I hope to see uh, some of those nominations for uh, Team of the Week because that's uh, some pretty impressive offensive numbers. I hope to see not too many uh, people who played defense in those games nominated, but that could certainly happen, I suppose. Um, Keith, but to backtrack a second, so best three-way rivalry in Division Three? are you saying that the CBB is better than the little three?
1: I guess I'm saying that in football— uh, doesn't seem like the little three is actually a thing.
0: Take that That's, Amherst, Williams and And I, I tell you, I, Williams is probably not capable of competing much in a rivalry in football these days.
1: Yeah. They, they've really gone from one of the perennially best teams in the NESCAC to, to not so much, but you tell me in basketball, do the, does the little three or to other sports. Do they really take it seriously? I just don't, I've never gotten a sense that, um, that is a big deal in football.
0: Uh, I tell you i mean Amherst Williams, for sure is one of the biggest basketball rivalries in uh, in Division three um, Wesleyan men's basketball lately has been capable of hanging um maybe not always uh so you know I can't speak to like i' know nothing about hockey i'm I'm happy to let other people handle hockey um but I could tell you at least in men's basketball that's a that's a pretty serious rivalry but it's not well, as fancy a name as c b b I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of weird to to keep saying though. Who's that with CBB? Let's see. Worst prediction from Quick Hits. Uh, This was a week where only one top twenty-five team got upset. We might have mentioned that. None of us actually picked Denison to lose. Although since there was a question specifically about Denison, Wabash, and Wittenberg later down the page, um, you know that's probably why people avoided it. And and even there, I was the only one who even broached the possibility of Denison losing. And I should probably only get half credit at most for that because I was pretty vague about all I all I said was. that the Denison uh, DePaul game could have the biggest impact, but maybe not the most positive one for Denison. I'm pretty sure I
1: said that uh, it's not it's not a lock, which is broaching the possibility. <laughs> in, in case, broaching case, uh, the possibility. Uh, there was there are always some good predictions and quick hits, and I'm happy to highlight those. Uh, we split down the middle on the Washington Lee Randolph making game with uh, uh, me, Frank, and Doug Rothschild, the Wheaton football alum and radio analyst, who was our guest picking. Uh, this week, uh, all of us went for the Yellow Jackets, and the Yellow Jackets pulled that one out, 18-10. to 10. It was a defensive battle. You, you kind of don't expect that when, uh, when W&L gets going. Uh, five of the six of us picked a team that would bounce back from a loss and win this week, and four of us picked a one-loss team that would lose number two. All in all, not a bad week. Check us out again this week. This Friday, quick hits. Our, our speedy, I guess, Friday morning predictions. We'll have five regulars and a uh, guest panelist.
0: And uh, we're trying to keep this podcast under an hour. I'm not sure if we're going to make it, but we're going to try. We're going to go right ahead with your two-minute drill. We're just going to begin. We're not waiting for you. So uh, let's see. The Wooden Shoes are going back to, oh, yeah, you probably don't know about this trophy, people, but it's the one that Hope and Kalamazoo play for. And Hope had kind of uncharacteristically watched this game two years in a row. But they won 31-6 on Saturday to bring the shoes back to, yes, Holland, Michigan, the Wooden Shoes. Baldwin Wallace lost to Capital 42-41 when it fumbled the
1: two-point conversion attempt in the second overtime. The game story on the Baldwin Wallace site says junior running back Austin Smith appeared to cross the goal line for the win but was determined to have fumbled into the end zone. That's a tough way to lose. Ouch. The Yellow Jackets are a stunning
0: 2-6 and six this season. I thought I heard Baldwin-Wallace fans asking for top 25 votes this preseason. Uh, but let's talk some more about shoes. Uh, this is a pair of shoes that did not change hands or change feet. Uh, Occidental retain- retained the shoes with a 56-38 win versus Whittier. Occidental's first win of the season, by the way. These are the shoes that the Occidental football team allegedly stole from Whittier running back Myron Claxton on the third. Thursday before the team's game in 1939. Claxton played in his work boots and led Whittier to a 36-0 win. After the game, he went over to the Occidental sidelines and reclaimed his shoes, and they were bronzed into a trophy, and the rest is uh, quote-unquote history. Hey, D3's got some
1: cool stuff, also the coolest trophy backstories. Yeah. Uh, Albion finally gets a win. After nine last season, it took them to week nine to get one. This season, but it was in emphatic fashion, 63 to 20 over Rockford. Had to go outside uh, the conference games to get their win, I guess. Loris also finally got one and improved to one in seven, beating Luther 43 28. The Duhawks weren't quite the juggernaut uh, Albion was last season, so we didn't expect them necessarily to to win, but they were kind of a uh, chic pick to improve on their four wins behind sophomore quarterback Nolan Baumhover, and it was uh, Bob Kelly who quarterback
0: Loris to Saturdays win. Keith, do you remember the blog post I once wrote about the old funky knickers? Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> I think it made up, for those who don't know, and, you know, why would you? Uh, about a decade ago, I think, on the blog, I, I made up a, uh, uh, a trophy between... I picked the really old name for Bluffton, which was, uh, like, some kind of something-something Mennonite school, and Frostburg, I think, which had been at one point, like... Maryland normal or normal number one or something like that and created this whole mythical backstory around the old funky knickers and now I, of course I can't find it on the blog uh, fast enough I type old funky knickers and oddly enough I get a whole lot of different things eBay and Amazon <laughs> yeah Etsy, no um, I did find it November 10th of 2006, a decade ago State Normal number 2 and Central Mennonite College
1: Man, as long as you spell knickers correctly.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, is it the better than the goat? The shot glass, the drum. The
1: wasn't the wagon wheel? Stag hat? Are we just naming <laughs> random D three trophies? Yeah,
0: yeah, we're naming uh, it's random D three D three trophy time as uh, so we've run out of a two minute drill and the 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 horn went off a while ago and we're down to the final couple minutes of the podcast. Keith, what's coming up next week?
1: A lot of good games and, and we went from having all these great top 25 clashes and then this week we got a respite from that but there were a lot of good conference games including in, in the NJAC and the Empire 8 which seems like there are always great gate conference games there every week uh, North Coast next week all across the board. Week 10 usually is the case. East Texas Baptist at Hardin-Simmons, we mentioned. that sort of a Pool B.C. elimination game. Hobart at St. Lawrence. You'll be there, Pat, if Hobart wins. They must also beat Rochester in uh, week 11 to close out the Liberty League slate. Wesley at Salisbury uh, before. For the NJAC lead, uh, especially because uh, Wesley has the 43-7 win early in the season against Frostburg. uh, uh, But Frostburg and Salisbury play in Week 11. Wabash at Denison, uh, just the first step in trying to close out the the North Coast. Case Western Reserve at Westminster, Pennsylvania. We talked about that one earlier. Case trying to remain undefeated. Western New England, 8-0. Salve Regina, 7-0. That's a de facto NFC title game. We have St. Norbert. Undefeated in uh, the Midwest Conference, but 6-2 overall. They're at Monmouth, which is 6-0, 8-0. Alfred uh, at Utica, again, in the Empire 8. Saxons also play St. John Fisher in Week 11. So uh, even though Alfred is 8-0 and, and in the top 15, they have uh, two of their toughest games yet to play. Norwich at Husson in the ECFC. I almost forgot what conference those guys are in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Johns Hopkins, they don't get challenged all that often. In uh, in the Centennial, but they're at six and two. Franklin and Marshall next week. Uh, Hendricks and Wash U, both of those teams six and two. And uh, remember, fans of those Texas teams want Hendricks in. Although with uh, three one-loss teams in the SAA, that's not as easy to manage any longer. Barry and Center they play in uh, week eleven, November twelfth. And so far, just a lonely, lonely co who's clinched. Uh, Redlands, I believe, can join them next week. And I'm sure a whole bunch of other teams can as well. Usually at this point in the week, we're still kind of Working through uh, all the scenarios, um, and by the time we get to Saturday, we'll we'll find uh, um, all the clinching scenarios. By the time we get to Wednesday, we'll get regional rankings, which I know we uh, we all look forward to. It starts making sense of the playoff picture. So, big big week coming up. Week ten is always big, but I think this one from the ECFC uh, all the way out to you know wherever North Coast and Jack. Uh, in upstate New York, huge games everywhere.
0: St. Lawrence, one of those teams that can clinch. Uh, Keith, you mentioned that Midwest Conference head-to-head game. That's going to be a clincher for somebody. Uh, Western New England and Salve Regina, that's going to clinch the NEFC for somebody. So we, had, you know, we don't often even have someone clinch an automatic bid in week nine, but uh, we'll have several of them by the time this upcoming week is done. And that means we'll have, at some point, uh, not this upcoming week, but the week after, we'll have a playoff projection. Uh, we'll uh, start to slot teams in and put out a mock bracket, and then God, uh, Selection Sunday's coming. It's coming, I tell you, uh, just November 13th. And uh, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, we'll have, uh, of course, every way that you can find out how to get the bracket. We'll have a mock bracket for you the morning of or the night before, so you have an idea of uh, you know where you might be if you're on the bubble, if you're safely in the at uh, in as an at large or if you're an automatic bid team, who you might be playing, who are the possibilities, what the bracket might look like. So a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I know uh, October's coming to a close. November is a pretty busy month here around uh, D3football.com, and we'll have all of it for you. But this was the Around the Nation podcast, number 160, for the week of October 31st, 2016. Thanks for listening, and tune in for the rest of that coverage as mentioned throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it to help other Division III football fans find it. And thanks for following Division III football on D3football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guest, Jeff Sokol, along with uh, Rose Holman, sports information director, Kevin Lanky, for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th and then again monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtags on your tweets and Instagram posts. We're done.